This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We've seldom started the show with the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I think we're going to do so today. And and who's going to stop us? And just so happens we have a, a few extra items for today that would be appropriate. Starting with the fact that we would note that it was a good week a couple weeks back for karma with the news that Donald Trump, who was a Brexit booster, now has two Scottish golf courses that are losing money. This is attributed to the lack of access to European staff. Evidently, his Turnberry Resort in Scotland is down $4.5 million. Oh. We would note that the week before that, it was a bad week for writers, and we would note anyone else who's a white-collar worker, coming along with BuzzFeed's announcement that only a month after laying off 180 employees, that it will start using an AI chatbot to generate its trademark quizzes and lists. CEO Jonah Peretti called it a new era of creativity. We would call it a new era of cutting labor costs. And rest assured, we're going to have more to say about chatbots and AI before we're through. And it was also an ugly week recently for, I guess you'd call it, assessing how much your friends really like you. The story is this. A Brazilian man faked his own death to see how many people would attend his funeral. Baltazar Lemos, age 60, described as a ceremonista who conducts funerals, hatched the plan after presiding over a service that drew only two mourners. So he announced his own death via social media, and a week later, as friends and family members gathered in a small chapel, Lemos slipped out in front of the stunned mourners, whose confusion turned to anger when he explained his motive. Lemos said he had no intention of hurting, offending, or causing any harm to anyone. And I guess that circles back around to how sad people really felt to find out that Mr. Lemos had passed. I know the information we have does not show how many people turned out for the event, which forces us to segue into the only funny line we've ever quoted from Red Skelton, although I'm pretty sure it was from Red Skelton's writers. When the much-hated head of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn, passed, evidently a surprisingly large number of people turned out for the funeral ceremonies, which prompted Red to quip, Well, give the people what they want, and they'll turn out for it. All right, how about a round two? It was a good week this past week for novel legal defenses after a California man successfully beat a DUI charge explaining that his wife had just caught him cheating on her. Thomas Houston's lawyer explained to the jury that drunk driving was necessary to allow him to escape two angry women. Yeah, Try that one if you wind up failing a sobriety test. And we're pretty sure the cops won't buy it. And it was evidently a bad week a couple weeks ago for Republican sensitivities, we might say, given that Republican Representative Andrew Clyde of Georgia upset a few Democrats and others by handing out lapel pins to colleagues that depicted AR-15 assault rifles, 
which numerous GOP lawmakers, we would add, wore during National Gun Violence Survivors Week. In fact, I think I should repeat that. (laughs) Which numerous GOP lawyers wore during National Gun Violence Survivors Week. Representative Clyde, who owns a gun store, said he was giving the pins out to remind people how important the Second Amendment is in preserving our liberties. And what do you know, this past week was also an ugly week for Republican sensibilities and empathy, with the news that Florida's Duval County School District has removed a biography of Roberto Clemente from its shelves because sections detailing the racism faced by the black Puerto Rican baseball legend may violate in their minds Governor Ron DeSantis' Stop Woke Act. That act prohibits schools from exposing students to material that could cause racial anguish. And the district says a certified media specialist will formally review the book. And finally, an item that I guess is good and bad and ugly, depending on how you want to look at it. But the story is that Donald Trump's lawyer, Tim Parlatore, has claimed that the former president was using one of the classified document folders that were found at his Mar-a-Lago estate to block the light from his bedside telephone so he could sleep at night. Chuckling, Parlatori said, it's one of the more humorous aspects of this whole thing. Yes, a man who alleges that he is a billionaire is using government folders to block the light from his telephone. And if you believe that, we have a bridge in Brooklyn we would like to interest you in. And speaking of Republican lunacy, which frankly we can't stop doing, Ron DeSantis, who's apparently the front runner now for the Republican presidential nomination in 2024, was noted in the New Yorker as having said in his gubernatorial campaign debate last fall that it's not true that the United States was built on stolen land, which causes us to pause and say, no? I guess if you accept putting people on a ship in Europe and sending them over to the the new world to plant a flag and declare ownership, if you consider that a legitimate title to the real estate that made up the whole Western Hemisphere, well, then I, I, I guess you could say that that would make sense. It wasn't really stolen. I guess we circle back to that phrase that we like to quote so much in this program that, you know, it was perfectly legal. And yeah, I guess that uh, the Spanish, formerly Spanish land that, that I'm sitting on right now was in fact claimed by Spain, even though the Ohlone Indians were currently living on it. You know, I was watching a documentary. It was about what is the United States of America's oldest city, which is, in fact, St. Augustine, Florida, and puzzled over the fact that we've all all heard that St. Augustine is the oldest city in what is today the USA. But the backstory behind it, I think, has really been lost in the shuffle. The documentary alluded to the fact that once the Spanish had found their way north from the Caribbean and stumbled onto Florida and the east coast of the U.S. that they sort of had a claim on all of that. When we read about the founding of Jamestown and the founding of Plymouth and, you know, Pilgrims and Thanksgiving and all that, it seems to be sort of lost in the shuffle that this may have been kind of a shaky land deal that, that England was pulling. Well, not that they weren't all pulling shady land deals, the French, the English, the Spanish, the Portuguese, etc., But believe me, this is something I want to look into. Could it be that when they landed at Jamestown that they were pulling a fast one, establishing a town in Spanish territory? The whole story of St. Augustine was a lot more complicated than I certainly had appreciated. 
It's a very interesting documentary. By the way, I was quite disturbed to note after watching the documentary and going on to my social media website that I was then fed an article from Discover Magazine about, what do you know, America's oldest city, St. Augustine, Florida. What a coincidence. And I guess by now, we're all getting used to the fact that you're being spied on, which when you're watching television, they want to see what you're watching so they can cross-reference that to advertising. This was an advertisement for Discover Magazine, I think, or, or Discover. Yeah, I mean, look at the top of the page here. It says subscribe. So yeah, they were feeding me an advertisement knowing what I'd already been prone to watch on TV. Anyway, yours truly does hope to make a trip to the Sunshine State sometime in the next year, and we'll hopefully go visit St. Augustine when I can report a little more about this strange saga. Considering, per the documentary and this this article, how how bleak the settlers found Florida and how they were always on the, the edge of starvation because the land was so poor, it's easy to understand why Spain was looking south to Central America, Mexico, South America, etc., where the riches were, and not paying a whole lot of attention to, to the Florida Peninsula, let alone the coastline as far north as Massachusetts. This does call to mind a humorous article that was in the National Lampoon many decades ago, describing how the Pilgrim families coming over on the Mayflower, trying to reach Jamestown, found themselves instead ashore in Massachusetts, at which point they stoned the navigator to death. I must say, I'm really impressed by you know, how these tales of the Spaniards killing the French and the French killing the Spaniards and the British killing the French and everybody killing each other for the sake of land and power and glory is, is just, it's, it's, it's pretty depressing. They did stumble at one point onto the exploits of Sir Francis Drake, who did at one point attack St. Augustine. But of course, Sir Francis Drake was operating under legal license of the Queen. So I guess everything that he did was perfectly legal. One thing I did have to laugh about when watching this documentary was how the first episode seemed to show that St. Augustine was sort of a, a multinational, multicultural a community, which they were comparing favorably to the sort of society that was in the English colonies, which was very racist. But of course, as the episodes uh, proceeded, it was pretty clear that that was a little bit of a, uh, an optimistic viewpoint of St. Augustine in its um, brief golden era. Because when it came to things like uh, the slave trade, the Spanish were were no slouches. Speaking of slavery, and I think appropriate for Black History Month, we have just a a brief little snippet I want to do here from a book review that was in The Week magazine. The book was titled Master Slave, Husband, Wife, An Epic Journey from Slavery to Freedom by Ilyan Wu. It tells yet another story that I'm sure that none of us have ever heard, which is that in 1848... A husband and wife from Macon, Georgia, who were both enslaved, pulled off one of the most daring and ingenious feats of self-emancipation imaginable. Ellen Craft, a fair-skinned seamstress, disguised herself as an ailing and wealthy young white man and boarded a train with her darker-complected husband, William, posing as an enslaved caregiver. The Craft scheme succeeded remarkably, and the tale they began sharing after they reached the North energized the abolitionist movement and helped change the course of history. The author noted that the, today the craft story has faded into obscurity, but this new book, according to its reviewer, combines meticulous research and cinematic sweep to bring it to a wider audience. A sad addendum to this is that um, the dangers didn't end when the couple crossed the Mason-Dixit line or settled in Boston, which they did, In 1858, 
revisions to the Fugitive Slave Act emboldened would-be captors. The effort to protect the couple became a celebrated cause. Allies in Boston helped them escape to England, where they published a short memoir in 1860, started a family, and continued advocating for slavery's end. But I guess it's not all bad. The Crafts apparently did return to the U.S. after the Civil War to continue working on behalf of black Americans. Seems like that might be a pretty good read. It's certainly a remarkable story. And at this point, I think it's my duty to report some uh, very unsettling news regarding COVID. In December, I received one of those freebie medical newspapers, which are mailed to doctors and former doctors all across the U.S. and I'm sure abroad. The article on infectious disease, and this is from Nature Medicine, reprinted in mdedge.com slash family medicine. The article noted that getting COVID a second time, according to a new study, doubles a person's chance of dying and triples the likelihood of being hospitalized in the next six months, which is sobering enough, but what really gets me was the next paragraph that said vaccination and booster status did not improve survival or hospitalization rates among people who were infected more than once. Now, I wasn't too concerned about this because, well, I just had a hard time believing that that many people were going to be getting it a second time since so many people I know are fully vaccinated. But on Saturday, I contacted a friend who who you've heard on this show, dear listener, he's been a semi-regular contributor over the years, to see if he wanted to go over to the beach. There was an especially low tide taking place this past weekend, and that's always interesting when you're at the beach. He wrote back to say, sure, what time? But then did add, yeah, but you know, it looks as though the wife has now gotten COVID a second time. So we immediately concluded that it it probably wasn't a good idea if he came over and hung out with us at the beach, given that his status was unknown and that he had a definite exposure His wife had tested positive, I think, two days before, meaning it was quite possible that he would contract it as well. And, for all we know, could be in the most infectious part of the cycle, you know, which is just before you become symptomatic. The further conversation that we conducted was even much more disturbing. Both of his sons had recently gotten COVID, and one of them said it was about as sick as he'd ever been. Keep in mind that that son is 30 years of age and in excellent health. How many times have you been vaccinated, I asked my friend, and he said, well, at this point, five. And uh, what do you know? The next day he sent me a text pointing out that, oh, well, uh, the test did come back positive. And one day later, he was complaining of body aches, teeth chattering chills, and fever, and in general felt pretty bad. I must confess, my thinking was that if somebody is fully immunized, they've been shot up five times and given various uh, uh, immune system stimuli to buy them some protection from COVID-19, that they probably wouldn't get all that ill. But my friend sounds fairly ill, and we'll give you a status update on next week's program. This is the first time he's actually gotten the disease. I told him, well, with your immune system having six exposures by this point, you I would think you would do well after this. But ladies and gentlemen, what does this say to the rest of us about how we should be protecting ourselves? Earlier this month, the Biden administration said they would let the COVID national and public health emergencies that were declared back in 2020 expire in May 
as the pandemic is described as entering an endemic phase. But people have pointed out that with more than 500 Americans still dying every day from COVID, this might be premature. Writing in Bloomberg, Lisa Jarvis said whether the emergency is truly ended is debatable, being that the death rate is about 180,000 a year at this point. People are asking, well, what, what, what do we do when the emergency ends? Well, free access to most pandemic-related health care is going to change. Vaccines will remain free for people on Medicare and Medicaid. But for everyone else, private insurance will determine the costs of vaccines and of the antiviral treatments. Predictably, the idiots over at National Review, and the idiot in question here being someone named Drew Keyes, said, why wait till May? noting the threat to the pandemic has really been over for at least a year. So Biden should end the emergency now. The administration has extended it to serve its own political interests, using the pandemic as an excuse to advance its broader agenda from eviction moratoria to student debt forgiveness. Most people are far more worried about the economy, the deficit, the media, and poor leadership in government than they are about COVID. To which the knucklehead added, Biden is finally acknowledging what most of us already know. The public has resumed normal life which prompted a reality check from Greg Gonsalves writing in The Nation saying, but we're really not back to normal. It's easy to look around at maskless faces and think all is well. But he pointed out last week, more people died of COVID and then perished in the Twin Towers on 9-11. The U.S. death rate remains higher than those of other developed countries. And, quote, endemic, unquote, COVID poses a serious threat to the elderly, poor, and immune-compromised. Only 16% of those eligible have received the latest bivalent booster, and ending the emergency will end a vital series of protections for millions who rely on free vaccines, tests, and treatments. Taken together, this looks suspiciously like a continuing emergency. Well, I tell you what, I think I'm going to be wearing masks more in public than I have been doing lately, which is to say that I hardly ever do it. I think Masks may need to come back on. I think hand sanitizer needs to be handy. I think avoiding crowds is probably a good concept. And frankly, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little scared by this development. The virus, of course, has been mutating. It's, I think it's been said that every single site in the, in, the, in the genetic material of the virus has probably mutated thousands of times by now, which is going to allow scientists to do a lot of good science in figuring out how this thing has been changing. But the thing is, uh, when it changes in a way that makes it more infectious, and evidently it has been, that's bad news. It does seem that it's not as deadly as it has been in the past. And people have pointed out that there will be a natural tendency to select for viruses that are less deadly, because after all, it's not in the virus's interest to, in, to infect someone and kill them immediately so the virus can't spread. So yes, there is that certain trend built into the evolution of, of how the virus is going to mutate and be selected for, etc. But it's hard to say, you know, if and when it's going to become just another cold virus. As reported on this program, and as I reported to my friend, uh, far as we know, the last coronavirus, and of course when you get a common cold, there are many viruses that may be giving you that, that set of sniffles. Adenoviruses, rhinoviruses, and coronaviruses tend to lead the list. So, as we've talked about on this show, I don't know, more than once, you probably have had a coronavirus before COVID showed up, my dear listener. But when they look back in time, 
at, at the various mutations of the viruses, they concluded that the last one that jumped into human beings probably did so about 1890. It became what was known as the Russian flu. Killed about a million people worldwide. That virus, with time, became a much milder version of itself and generally did not kill people. But after my friend did a review of this particular subject, he wrote back to say, well, nobody's sure what, how long it took for that virus to have become relatively benign. And yes, that was true then, and it appears to be true yet again now. Anyway, look at the fact that I've had the bug. Mr. Millen has had the bug. We've all been vaccinated. I've been shot up four times since then. And yet it seems clear enough I have a reasonable risk of getting it again. And per that second paragraph in the medical article, vaccination and booster status did not improve survival or hospitalization rates among people who were infected more than once. Now, it should be noted that one reason we can find some optimism in in this bad news study is that it was conducted at VA hospitals. And having worked in a VA, I can verify the point made in the article that uh, the population found in those hospitals does not reflect the general population. Patients at VA health facilities are generally older with more health complications than would be considered normal. Still, this is all a lot of food for thought. All right, in a few minutes we, we have left, let's, let's do a couple obituaries, maybe three, none of whom, we would note, passed due to COVID, as far as we know. The Italian actress Gina Lola Brigida passed away recently, as did fellow sex symbol Raquel Welch, but we'll have to get to Raquel another day. Gina Lola Brigida, I just want to note... Had an ability, it was said, to make much of the world go weak at the knees back in her day. I had to laugh at the crack Humphrey Bogart made about his co-star in the 1953's Beat the Devil. He said Gina Lola Brigitte make Marilyn Monroe look like Shirley Temple. Back in the day, Gina Lola Brigitte was frequently compared to her fellow Italian star, Sophia Loren. But it should be noted that, that Lola Brigitte thought of herself as a little bit different than Loren. She once said, we are as different as a fine horse and a goat. Worthy of note that when her movie career ended, she uh, became a photographer, an accomplished photographer. She published well-received portraits of the likes of Salvador Dali, Audrey Hepburn, and Henry Kissinger. Also became a sculptor and a documentary filmmaker. Back in 2013, she said, I'm only a film star because the public wanted me to be one. One thing you can say about Gina Lola Bridget is she did not have problems with self-esteem. And we just learned of the passing of comedian and actor Richard Belzer, who's somebody we, we probably should have reached out to and brought on this program. Not for his acting on TV, which I scarcely ever noticed, or for his career as a stand-up comic, although I know he was well-regarded, but for the fact that he took a look at what he called conspiracy theories and said, well, you'd have to be crazy not to believe some of these. To which I would add, we're, we're, we're with him when he was talking about, you know, the JFK assassination, but probably not so much when he took the viewpoint that Elvis was probably still alive or that flying saucers were real. Anyway, I put some feelers out to some people that may have known Belzer and see if we can get them to say a few words about him. And lastly, we have the passing of songwriter Bert Bacharach. Now, I confess, I started out a bit cynical about Mr. Bacharach having considered that he wrote the worst song of 1968. The worst song? In my mind. But let us defer that. As I look through a list of what Bacharach had composed, I have to say he did some wonderful tunes. Topping my personal list would be uh, Arthur's Theme, 
which did wonders for Christopher Cross, Mr. McMillan. Let's go backward in time from the early 80s to a, a hit from the late 60s, from the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, hit for B.J. Thomas. Raindrops are falling on my head And just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed Nothing seems to fit those Raindrops are falling on my head, they keep falling So I just did me some talking to the sun And I said I did Anyway, I've, I've been completely won over to the side that he was one hell of a great composer with some, with some surprising credits to his name Bacharach is responsible for Gene Pitney's hit The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance Also a great movie with John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart that great hit from the 80s for Naked Eyes. Always something there to remind me. Bacharach. The Look of Love, Sergio Mendez. Pretty good stuff. I think the most surprising thing was discovered courtesy of a, a posting by David Talbot on Facebook that Bert Bacharach also wrote the hit for the group Love titled Little Red Book. I'm genuinely astonished that that was a Bacharach composition. But it was. Anyway, nobody bats a thousand. And we do, I think, have to round out that picture by citing the following from 1968. Do you know the way to San Jose? I've been away so long. I may go wrong and lose my way. Do you know the way to San Jose? I'm going back to find some people. Yes, I don't know what's worse, Bracarac's music or Hal David's lyrics, inquiring as to whether you know the way to San Jose. Mr. Mill points out that this song may have been useful in, in prompting people to try and find the way to San Jose, but I'm skeptical. Anyway, in summary, if any of you have been to San Jose, and I'm sure most of you have been, you'll understand why it is most people really don't need to know the way to San Jose. We take a short break, and I think we need to do that using uh, the stuff I really like. Let's, Mr. Mill, let's go back to Arthur's theme, shall we? We've got a lot to talk about the second half. Stick around. <laughs> 